The scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. It can be found on page 968 in the Black Bibles. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of their surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Justin and Emily. Thank you as well, Daniel, for leading us. And good morning. Uh, great to be with y'all this morning. We are on sermon number three of three, which is good, uh, on our mini-series here on financial stewardship. And so next week, which is, as um, Taylor already mentioned, is the first Sunday in Lent, we'll be back to our series on the Gospel of Mark. And so we're going to talk this morning about uh, financial stewardship as an act of worship, as an element of worship, as a part of our gathered worship uh, together as God's people. So let's pray and ask God to help us and we'll jump into this text. Father, we do thank you for the inexpressible gift that is Christ our Savior. We pray that if nothing else this morning we would see him more clearly and be in awe of him and his glory and our salvation in him. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the things that I think is funny are the little blurbs, you know, that you'll see uh, when a movie comes. I don't know if they do it as much anymore because of YouTube, you know, you can just go watch everything. But you know, when movies used to come out, they would always have these blurbs like, you know, this is the best movie I've ever seen, you know. But it would be like, this is the best dot, dot, dot movie dot, dot, dot that I've ever seen. You know what I'm saying? So, you, you know, it's a creative use of the ellipse or the ellipsis or whatever. I don't know much English. Is that what it is? But, you know, it's the three dot thing. And um, if you bothered to actually go and read the entire review that they had taken this little blurb from, it would probably say something like this. This is the best example I could give students studying film exactly how not to do it. Because it is genuinely the worst film I've ever seen. But you see, you can actually get this is the best film I've ever seen out of that sentence. With the creative use of the ellipsis. Just pulling it right out of context, you know, and, and making it say whatever you wanted to say. That has nothing to do with this sermon other than to say this. One of the real dangers in preaching what amounts to a, a topical sermon is that you, well, in this case me, the preacher, could think about what it is that I want to say 
And I could spend a week digging around in the Bible trying to make the Bible say it. Um, a lot of people do that, and uh, I could do it. There's actually, if you want to play Trivial Pursuit, there's actually a word for this. It's called eisegesis. It's, it's, look, it's finding what you want in the text rather than exegesis, which is uh, pulling out of the text what it actually says. And all that is to say that when we come to a passage like 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we have to be careful. Because this is actually a two, this is the, the, the middle to end dish part of, uh, as the end, of a two chapter argument that the Apostle Paul is making. And we're going to have to take some time to orient ourselves to what Paul is actually saying here. So we can understand the larger point that he makes, which is this. There is grace in generous giving. Grace is all over our giving. God motivates by grace our giving, and God, and God attends by grace our giving. So there's grace in our giving. Grace motivates our giving. Grace attends our giving. But first, let's orient ourselves to this passage. What's going on here? And why is Paul calling the Corinthians out, this church? And if you read chapters 8 and 9, which I'd encourage you to do this afternoon if you want to, it talks about the Macedonians, it talks about the poor in Jerusalem who need money. I mean, what is happening here? Well, here's a fun fact for you. 2 Corinthians, what is listed in our Bible as 2 Corinthians, is actually the third letter that Paul wrote to this church. The first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth is 1 Corinthians, the book right before this in your Bible. The second letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, we don't have. It's gone. But he refers to it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 as a painful and sorrowful letter that he wrote to them uh, based upon a report that he had received about what was going on in the church. The third letter that Paul wrote to the the church in Corinth is right here. This letter that is in our Bibles listed as 2 Corinthians. And Paul wrote 2 Corinthians for three main reasons. Uh, And Paul's patience is pretty amazing and it is challenging to a pastor like me. Because he writes 2 Corinthians for these three reasons. The first is, the church in Corinth is still struggling with all of the same things that they were struggling with when he wrote them 1 Corinthians years before this. There were still factions in the church between Jews and Gentiles who did not associate with one another even though they were all one in Christ. There were factions between rich and poor who were separated in the church, which is uh, a, a horrendous thing. They were still arguing over which leaders to follow. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, who is Peter, instead of understanding that all of those leaders were there to point them ultimately to Christ. But they were still struggling with all those things. He addresses them here in 2 Corinthians. Second, the church in Corinth was still struggling with all of the issues that Paul had addressed in the lost letter the sorrowful and the painful letter, you can pick that up from context clues all over the place, particularly in the realm of something that was pointed to uh, in 1 Corinthians and then in the painful letter as well, uh, that they were still tolerating rampant, unrepentant sexual immorality as one example. In the church, not in the culture, in the church. The third thing is that now, on top of all of that, there are three new issues that Paul has to take up with with this church. First, they are accusing Paul of deceiving them. 
they're calling Paul a liar, essentially, because Paul had said that he wanted to visit them and his timing got messed up because of God's providential circumstances in his life. And they were saying, well, we knew we couldn't trust this guy, Paul. And so he's writing them to explain why he was delayed. Second, now not only are they arguing about which actual Christian teachers they want to follow, you know, I follow Tim Keller, I follow John Piper, that sort of thing. They're now, there were now these false teachers that were coming into their church and leading them astray from the actual gospel. So they've got all kinds of problems there. And the third thing, new issue, is that they had begun collecting money that Paul was going to deliver for the persecuted and suffering believers in the city of Jerusalem. They had begun this collection. We know it because it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. But then they stopped. They stopped and they were leaving this burden of this collection to churches around them who are much poorer than they are. See, the church in Corinth, while not rich necessarily, was much better off than some of the others. But they were leaving this collection to churches that were actually much poorer than they were. And Paul's writing to encourage them to pick that back up. Now... As a parenthesis, there's one massive piece of encouraging news here, and it is this. The church of the resurrected Jesus has been messy forever. Forever. Three letters Paul's writing to this church, they're all still struggling with all of the same things. It's messy. The church is a messy place. So if you're tempted to look back at a golden age of the, the church, or maybe a golden experience that you've had in church. Maybe you're thinking, boy, if we could just go back to Christ the King 2010. That was great. That was a great year. Christ the King 2005, my, the best year of this church. We never get back there. Or, man, if I could just have this uh, experience that I had when I was in RUF in 1996. you know, Or, man, if the church could just be like 1950 or 1875. You just keep on going back. If you keep on going all the way back, you'll get to the first century and you'll get to Corinth. And you'll be like, ooh, uh, okay, so it's pretty much the same. You know, the church has always been a messy place. It's going to be a messy place until Jesus returns. So when it comes to chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, what's, what's at issue here and how does this push us forward and what we're talking about? Well, the specific issue that Paul is addressing in these two chapters is a financial collection that he was encouraging the churches that he and others had planted in the more Gentile areas of the world that he wanted to take and to deliver back to Jerusalem where there was a remnant of followers of Jesus in Jerusalem who were being severely persecuted and who were severely poor. You see, if you remember, if you've read the book of Acts or you have any familiarity with the book of Acts, Christianity, essentially the resurrection of Jesus, uh, he appeared to people in Jerusalem. And so the church took off in Jerusalem. But it wasn't very long until it was persecuted severely. The Apostle Paul was one of those persecutors. He was holding everybody's cloaks as they were stoning Stephen to death. There's a, a passage about that in the book of Acts. And so a lot of Christians fled from the city. And those who didn't, those who remained in Jerusalem, were, were persecuted. They were persecuted by the Romans. They were persecuted by the Jews. It was, it, was a, it was a severe persecution. And they were raising financial support to care for their brothers and sisters in Christ who were struggling. 
And so we see from 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 that Corinth, this church in Corinth, had begun this collection, but then they had stopped. They had stopped. And Paul's writing them here to, pick, to urge them to pick this back up again. So here's what I want you to understand, full disclosure. The contextual issue at hand in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is a special collection that is being taken up or being encouraged to be taken up in the church in Corinth for a group of Christians in another city, in another place. Uh, it's like if we were to take up, uh, if, a, if a hurricane were to hit and we were to take up a collection here at Christ the King to send to some group of Christians struggling somewhere else, which we have done before. That is more at issue here than the week-to-week tithes and offerings for the support and the ongoing mission and ministry of that church in Corinth. However, that would have been normative and is normative in the teaching of Paul. And and we're going to hopefully see that. Hopefully I can get us there in the end here. But there are still things that we can learn about giving as an act of worship from these two chapters in 2 Corinthians. And the first is this. Grace must motivate our giving. Grace motivates our giving. One of the unintended consequences on any sermon series on financial stewardship, or really anything else, you know, kind of topically speaking, is that it can provoke guilt. It can create a burden on you it can sound manipulative it can sound like a a a quid pro quo you know you do this for God and God's going to do this for you you know that kind of thing I want to be sensitive to that which is why I want to remind you that all of this is about God's grace we're emboldened we are motivated we are we are privileged to give generously as a response of God's grace made from a redeemed and renewed heart. You see, first our giving is a response of grace. Look at what we just read in chapter 9, verse 8. Paul writes, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. This sounds very similar to something he wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 where he, he, he talks about us coming into relationship with God by grace alone, through faith alone, and that in that we are then enabled to do good works. In other words, we do not do good works so that God will love us. God loves us. He loves you. And then he changes your heart and, those, and the manifestations of the kingdom of God, of those good works, flow from his grace. And so they emerge from a redeemed heart. Paul writes this in chapter 8. We didn't read this, but in chapter 8, verse 9, he says this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is the great exchange. In another place in 2 Corinthians, Paul says it this way. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's all about grace, you see. And this is super key. Super key. We don't give. We don't participate in in financial stewardship of, of, of what God has given us to compel God to love us. We give generously. Why? Because God loves us. And first 
loved us. His grace sets you free. It sets you free from the fear of bondage to the treasures on this earth. It sets you free to give in a way that is captivated and motivated by God's grace, not in an attempt to earn his love and his favor. You can't do that. You couldn't give enough to come close to earning that. He gives it to you freely. And by his grace, we're able to open our hands. And it's here that I want to pause for just a second. I want, to, I want to address any who might feel or have felt burdened in any way by these sermons. There are a couple of reasons why you could feel burdened. You know, One is, honestly, um, genuine conviction by the Holy Spirit. Maybe that you have been confronted that you do tend to want to put your hope and your faith in in that work of your hands and what you can make for yourself, that you can build for yourself uh, your own salvation, that you've tightly held to the resources that God has given to you. And, and maybe that's churning in your heart. But another burden is to leave with a gigantic weight on your shoulders. That, that, that you have real financial struggles, real financial issues. There are really things in your life that you are going through that are already burdensome to you. And you feel like you're walking out with more weight on your shoulders rather than less. I think that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, you're probably thinking, this is crazy town. And that's okay. Um, Christians do weird things like give away their money and sing and other things that Christians do. But if you're, if, you're, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're here this morning, there are probably three different categories of, 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 of circumstances. For some of you, tithing to the church at roughly 10% of your income is sacrificial. But it is also attainable. It is doable. You make some lifestyle changes, you make some budget changes, you reorder some of the priorities of your life and some of the priorities of your family. You feel it, you know that, that, that there are sacrifices happening there, and that's a good thing, but it can be done. For some of you, tithing to the church at 10% of your income is not really sacrificial at all. It could be possible that for very few people, tithing at 10% of your income to one particular church is not wise for the sake of that church. But that is not me and probably not you, maybe, but, but, but it is possible. Um, but, but, every, but, but, but whatever it is, it's just not really sacrificial. It's not impacting your life in any way. If this is you, it's an added opportunity. Uh, it's an added opportunity to pray and to prayerfully think about the kingdom opportunities that lie out in the world, all over the place, where you can best leverage the resources that God has given to you for the manifestation of God's kingdom on this earth. So 10% for you may become a starting place and not a stopping place as your vision of the kingdom gets bigger and bolder, your giving matches it. But here's the thing, for some of you, and this is real and totally legitimate, completely, the tithe of 10% is actually aspirational. It's something to aspire to. It's a goal that you can set before you to work toward because there are providential circumstances in your life where it would make it unwise for you to actually give at that amount at this time in your life circumstances. One of those circumstances is if you are encumbered by a large amount of debt. 
If you have a large amount of credit card debt, if you have a large amount of student debt, uh, if you have an unexpected illness and uh, hospital bills or unexpected repairs, those kinds of things, those can be real burdensome struggles. And so tithing is not your first priority. Your first priority is getting on sustainable financial footing. And tithing can be an aspirational goal for you, something that you aim at. There are a lot of other things that come our way that make tithing either impossible for the long run or for the short run. A chronic illness where medication that is necessary to sustain your life and your well-being that can be prohibitively expensive, that's real. That's a real providential circumstance in your life. Hurricanes that come into our city and flood your house, those things do happen. And here I would want to add that this is one of the many things that our amazing deacons that we have at Christ the King do extremely well. If you're struggling under the weight of financial burden, be it from debt, from unexpected expenses that are weighing you down, from uh, illness, from hospital bills, you know, those kinds of things, our deacons delight in and are gifted in sitting down with you and, and, and working through you with that and providing tangible help, tangible help to you in those kind of financial circumstances that, that are real and come along. You can reach out to Chris Hunniford, who's the chairman of our deacons. You can reach out to any of our deacons. They're there for you in those things. They're eager to walk with you in those things uh, through that, through, through, through those things with you. So the question, in other words, is not a legalistic one. It's, 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 it's actually a different question. It's a question of where your heart lies, balanced by what are the providential circumstances in my life. You know, uh, um, it, it, it's a different question a ridiculously expensive hospital bill that that blows you away financially is different than calculating that you're better off with your taxes taking the new standard deduction rather than the old itemized deductions so it's easier for you not to give because the standard deduction is more taxably advantageous for you so you probably thought I didn't know that but see I know these things Um, it's just different It's a matter of the heart, not a matter of legalism. So grace motivates our giving and grace also attends our giving. Have you ever wondered why in the world we have this thing in our worship service called an offering? We just had it right before the scripture reading. It was beautiful. Uh, Daniel played something beautiful and meditative and and worshipful for us. But why? Why? why is it there? It's weird, right? The offering? It's a strange sort of thing. There there are a couple of things that make the offering seem weird. One is that the offering in a worship service is is held in suspicion culturally, right? Uh, Maybe you're worried that if you take a risk and you write your non-believing neighbor or friend to, to come to worship at Christ the King, they'll be trucking along, you know, in our worship service, but they'll get to this thing and they'll read and they'll say this offering. And maybe you're afraid that they'll just stand up right where they are and say, I knew it. I knew it. I knew you were just trying to get me in here so you could take my money. Unfortunately, there's a reason why people think that, right? 
There's a legacy of corruption. There's a legacy of greed. Even in the church, Jesus' church in the world, it's understandable. It is. And so it's held in suspicion culturally. But it's also becoming, in some ways, culturally obsolete. This thing called the offering. What I mean is this. Most people who give to this church do so utilizing online giving. And so if you give at the end of the year or maybe you set online giving up at the beginning of the year, you can go online, you can connect your giving to your debit card, to your bank account, to your credit card, and all of a sudden the next thing you know is like, voila, money just disappears. You know, It's like taxes being taken out of your paycheck. You never have to see it. You never have to think about it. It's super efficient. It's sufficient for you. Honestly, it works pretty well for the church. Our family gives this way, and we're very thankful to Southwest Airlines, you know, for that opportunity. Um, But, you know, we do it on a regular system that we set up in January when we know kind of what our salary is going to be. We type it in there, and that's how we give. But here's the problem. There's a downside. The downside is that you can set this up to occur automatically and you never actually have to think about it again, you know? We could set this up in January and not think about it until the next January when we set it up, and then later in January when we download our giving statement, right? And on a weekly basis, we'd never have to think about what this thing called offering is. Uh, And so this offering in our worship service seems obsolete it seems like a vestige of kind of like the old days that online giving has replaced but here's something interesting in first corinthians chapter 16 when paul first encouraged the corinthian church to collect money for the persecuted christians in jerusalem he instructed them to do it like this it's chapter first corinthians chapter 16 verse 2 he says this on the first day of every week Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. The first day of the week is Sunday. It is the day of Jesus' resurrection. It is the day that followers of the resurrected Jesus have been gathering to worship. They replaced it from Saturday, which was the Jewish Sabbath, to Sunday, which is more akin to the Christian Sabbath because it is a a, a day where Christians gather to worship on the day of Jesus' resurrection. So Paul is encouraging this congregation to set aside offerings as a part of their worship and as a regular part of their worship, as an act of their worship. And that pattern of offering as an element of Christian worship has been a part of the church celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ ever since for the last over 2,000 years. You see, the reason why is because it mimics this pattern of redemption that we take ourselves through every Sunday as we gather for worship. That's the, the order of worship at Christ the King, it's a call and a response. It's, it's why we have an order of worship like we do. God calls us into his presence. We respond to his call into his presence by singing and praying. God calls us to trust in him by seeing him for who he is. We respond with confessing our faith and praying to him. We also are convicted of our sins by seeing God for who he is. So we confess our sins. And then God reminds us of his grace. We respond to that 
grace of God was singing with speaking peace to one another. Um, the, the, peace, the grace of God brings us peace with God and also peace with one another. But it also enables us not to worship the things of this world. And so we offer back to him in response to his grace. And through his grace, gifts to perpetuate the work of his church in the world. Then God calls us to hear him through his word and we respond with reading his word and preaching. God calls us to commune with him in his table and so we respond with our time of communion. Then God blesses us and sends us out in the world as missionaries where we engage the world on his behalf. So the offering, you see, is an important element in our worship. And the problem is, is that if we only give once a year at the end of the year, if we only give electronically, instead of participating in this time in any meaningful way, it's very easy to check out. It's very easy for that moment to pass you by, to miss a tangible, a gospel opportunity of God's grace. So if checking out during the opportunity robs you of a gospel opportunity, a physical, tangible way to express your gratitude for God's grace in your life. And to have that opportunity to tug your heart away from what is a struggle for all of us, that worship of money and material things, by weakly engaging our hearts in a time of offering. So, what do we do? I'll tell you what we're not going to do. We're not going to disable online giving. So what do we do? Well, the first thing to do is to remind you and to remind me that the theme of all of these sermons is that financial stewardship, first and foremost and ultimately, is a matter of the heart. It is not legalism. It is not spiritual one-upsmanship. It's not who can do better than the next person. It has nothing to do with that. But the physical moment of offering is important. It's an important formational moment in your week that the Lord meets with you. So here's one way forward for us at Christ the King. I would encourage you to find a way to fully participate in the offering moment in our worship service. If you make an offering uh, when, you, when you worship by check or with cash, then continue to do that. It's a meaningful participation. If you are right now not in a pattern of giving, and I would expect many of you not to be in that pattern, this is not a guilt manipulation moment. This is a moment for you to participate when the offering plate comes your way, as you touch it, as you take it. It's an opportunity for you to ask yourself, what am I putting my hope in? Where's my worship? Where's my hope? Maybe it's a long work of, of, of the Lord in your heart. If you give electronically, and whatever pattern it is that you give, there is also a way for you to participate in the offering. And we're going to do something that's a little bit odd, a little bit strange, but also tangible and physical, which is really helpful for us as actual human beings and not disembodied souls. For the five Sundays in the season of Lent, so we're not going to do this forever. So for the next five Sundays, starting next week, out in the foyer there with the orders of worship, we are going to create some little cards that look like this. I think they're going on the screen too. It says offering card. It doesn't say anything else on it. Offering card. And, 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 and what that will give you the opportunity to do, if you give electronically, 
For the next five weeks during Lent, you can pick one of those up when you come in as you pick up an order of worship. And as the, uh, during the time of offering, as the plate comes your way, you can just put that card in there. It's not a, you're not going to wave it around and say, look, I'm putting my card in the plate. It's no, stop, no, none of that. But it is an opportunity for you to connect your body to something that is happening. To be able to participate in a formative way. I'm not going to be naive and say we're going to do this for the next 50 years at Christ the King. Because I don't think that that will happen. Um, what I am kind of hoping for is it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a spiritual defibrillator. Like So we take five weeks and we go, you know, we shock ourselves back. Oh, there's this offering and our bodies are connected to it. And God's working in me formationally, you know, through this time it's an opportunity to you respond to God's grace to you in Christ we need this we need this in our time of worship because it reminds us of the depths of God's grace who sent Jesus for our sake became poor so that in him we might become rich unto eternal Life. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray. pray. Father, we thank you for the inexpressible gift that is Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray, Father, that we would worship him truly. Father, that you would just, the, 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 this grace that is, that is true would be so magnified in our lives that it would change everything about us. And Father, that we would be delighted and privileged to bring the grace to bear on others as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Dude.